Welcome to Side Talks. My name is Corey Kraft. I am programmer for the Sidewalk Film Festival and upcoming Sidewalk Cinema. And I'm Rachel Morgan. I am the creative director for the Sidewalk Film Festival and Cinema. And this is the podcast where we talk about all things cinema. I'm really trying there. Yeah, I think you got it. Get ready for a five-minute fight. Five-minute. Round one. Fight. fight. You know what it's time for. It's time for a five-minute fight. Five-minute fight. Let's do it. Okay, so start the clocks. What's the subject? Uh, the subject is Harmony Corinne. Uh, yep. There's that bleh, groan. Bleh. Um, Long know, sound effect, please. I'm not even a, a major defender of Harmony Corinne, but I do love a couple of his films, specifically 2013 Spring Breakers, which you have described to me as... Uh, in less charitable terms, a waste of time. It is a total waste of time. It is a total, he is a complete thief. Mm. Um, this film is uh, very, uh, very much, he clearly watched Zach Clark's vacation, exclamation mark. Um, I say that um, Zach Clark is a friend. I will say that, let you know that. So, um, but it is clear that he watched that film and I'm not the only one who noticed it. Other critics have called him out for that. Um, and fine, but d- didn't give credit, never mentioned that being an influence. And then he also uh, clearly spent a lot of time on 14 year olds Tumblr pages in, in an effort to make this film. This film is not good. Mm. Um, this film is um, a, a joke. Uh, to a degree, but I don't hold that against it. Yeah. I, I think it's I think it's provocative. I think it's interesting. I like its style. I like its You know its what's more provocative? Propulsion. What's that? Any Selena Gomez music video. Mm, well, I'm no Selena Gomez expert, so I can't really make counter that argument. But I will say that Spring Breakers is a movie that has stuck with me. Uh, since I saw it, I think it is. Uh, I think it's good fun uh, in a twisted, sort of semi-perverse way. I think that the idea, uh, the ideas behind it, are provocative. I think James Franco is excellent in it. I think that the uh, the uh, James Franco's female just pl- cast is really good. The, the uh, ensemble really? of, of girls, yeah, I think. Okay, they are. so James Franco's just sort of playing a very one-dimensional caricature of a of a character mm. um it's very lame this is also everybody got on board with this because it was before james franco totally made an ass of himself yeah. um it, which he just continued to do for years and years and years so everybody was like james franco's so wonderful and it's so funny i mean yes is it you know it reminds me of like you know when you're in 11th grade and somebody tells a little bit of an inappropriate joke and it's kind of funny and everybody laughs and that's that moment and let's move on and this whole thing is just that it's just like a it is one note it is one joke it is one joke that he heard somebody else tell and then he went and told it on a bigger scale um, and threw Selena Gomez in there in the mix I don't understand how you can discount the style behind it Uh, because it's just a borrowed style so I'm going to tell you something I saw this film on opening night Mm -hmm. premiere at South by Southwest um, Selena Gomez was present there. Everything set up uh, was set up for me to really like this film. There is no reason why I shouldn't. I mean, it's ideal circumstance and I dislike this film so much. It just is such it's such a one note and it is such a one note of something that he saw somebody else do and then he just repeated it. It's like a game of telephone and it's awful. And you know what's worse than this film? 
since we're not just talking about this film, but him as a director. I guess you're going to say Trash Humpers. Well, yeah, because it's yeah. a film that me and my brother would have made when we were like eight years old. It's like, let's put on these old men masks and just <laughs> so dumb. I left a whole order of mozzarella sticks in front of me at an Alamo <laughs> draft house and walked out of this film, which I don't normally do. I even stood up and was and said something verbally. I said, the joke's on us. And I walked out. I'm not proud of that, but I stand by it. Mm. Um, he had Janet Pearson, um, who is, you know, programmer and uh, I think ED for South by Southwest um, you know stand up and read a statement from um, maybe I shouldn't say she's ED anyway I'm burning up time here but the point is she read us she read a statement from um, Harmony Kareen in front of the film and I mean the the joke was on the joke is on us like this is not good filmmaking but but how do you routinely defend other provocateurs like Lars von Trier or Gaspar Noé sure. who play similar tricks on their audiences, who needle at their audiences in ways that Harmony Corinne does uh, and dismiss him so totally. Two totally different worlds here, three totally different worlds, really. And because they are original, they're coming with some original work, with some original thought. Is it provocative? Yes. This is candy coated provocation. But I think that the candy coating is the point. I think that that is sort of an aesthetic way into his thematic ideas, which is needling at American culture. He does is that it? in Yeah, he does that in Spring Breakers. He does that in his latest film The Beach Bum, which is a step down from Spring it. Breakers. Oh, wow. I don't think you would How, like where it. Are you, where is the step down from Spring Breakers into pure shit? You know that I Okay, you know that on my scale I'm I'm a big fan of Spring Breakers. I I'm not as big a fan of The Beach Bum, but I think The Beach Bum is solidly good and I think that that sort of candy-coated aesthetic is part of the point. It's it's a Trojan horse to smuggle in some really subversive uh, ideas in an Instagram Sam. sort of filter. So I won. Sam, come trash hump in here. Okay, I love how Rachel said he clearly spent a lot of time on 14-year-old's Tumblr pages because I can totally see that. But I agree with Corey that it's very provocative. It, that it, Corey said it stuck with him. Um, it's fun in a pretty perverse way with these characters doing pretty heinous crimes in a fun like spring break teenage vacation setting and also james franco is great i think his character is a parody of one note characters in real life like riff raff but his character and just james franco being james franco in it is so good and i don't think the movie's just one note like rachel thinks it's it's a lot of notes it's a lot of different layers to it also rachel loses let's say a million points for saying that selena gomez videos are more provocative because they just aren't maybe billy eilish videos but no wizards of waverly place though absolutely but rachel gains maybe a thousand points more for saying where is the step down from spring breakers a pile of shit but yeah overall rachel loses for sure which means that Corey wins. We need to get those okay, words so Cor- on the record. Okay, so Corey wins. <laughs> and now, fast film terms. Fast film terms. Fast film terms. Hey, guess what? What? Fast film terms. Okay. I just said it again. Yep, there um, it is. So what in the world is, and you see I'm just stalling here looking through my notes. What is blocking? Blocking, it's, it's the positioning of an actor um, on the set. 
in relation to the camera for um, the, their performance. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, it's it's a funny thing. You've got to kind of figure stuff out before you shoot stuff. Where the actor is going to walk, for instance. So uh, where the actor is going to put down their bottle of water, etc. Right. And where the camera is going to be when all of that goes down. So blocking is in a sense, you know, it's sort of like when people I've heard that when people they f- play football, you figure out which way they're going to run on the field or you try to predict that. It's right. A playbook. Yeah. Well, similarly, blocking is trying to figure out which way the actors are going to move, where's the, where the camera is going to move, any other action in the scene, how it's going to play out. Yeah, it's a football analogy. We're in Alabama. Did you like That's that? Fine. Yeah, it's good. Okay, and then I've got another one for okay, you. Okay, let's hear it. This one just sounds cool anyway. Okay. Hot set. I don't know what this is. So a hot set is, uh, contrary to popular popular belief, not a set where there's a bunch of hot actors, uh, even though that very well might be the case. Okay. But a hot set is where you're shooting and you want to make sure that everything stays where it is um, as you begin to wrap for the day or the afternoon or what have you um, so that there aren't continuity errors. Um, in other words, so that that pencil jar on the, t- on the desk doesn't, you know, all of a sudden end up on the other side of the room in the next shot. So a hot set just simply means nobody move anything, nobody touch anything, the set needs to stick the way that it is um, so that we don't have continuity errors. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. It also just, again, sounds cool. Hot set. Hot set. And now we'd like to welcome Charlie Brown Sanders III to the studio for his segment, Film History Minute with Charlie Brown. Today I'm going to talk to you guys about a movie called Airplane. It was released in 1980. It's on the list of 1,001 movies you must see before you die. The film cost $3.5 million to make, and it only took 35 days to make it. It made all of its money back, plus more, its opening weekend. It was written and directed by Jim Abrams and the Zucker brothers, David and Jerry. While in college in Wisconsin, the trio founded the Kentucky Fried Theater, which led to the sketch comedy film The Kentucky Fried Movie. To get ideas for sketches, the Zucker brothers would actually record hours and hours of late-night TV, which is how they saw a little-known disaster movie called Zero Hour. They bought the rights to this film for $2,500. If you take Zero Hour and add jokes, you have Airplane. The plot, the character names, and even much of the dialogue come straight from Zero Hour, including lines such as, We have to find someone who can not only fly this plane, but who didn't have fish for dinner. The directors knew they wanted established dramatic actors in the cast, but both the studio's casting director and the actors themselves needed to be persuaded. Neither Robert Stack, who plays Rex Kramer, or Lloyd Bridges, the man in the tower, understood the script or its puns or its wordplay. And even Peter Graves, who plays Captain Over, was uncomfortable with the innuendos in his scenes and didn't want the defining moment of his career to be asking a little boy, Joey, have you ever seen a grown man naked? For the role of Dr. Ramak, the directors wanted Count Dooku himself, Christopher Lee, who later said turning it down was a big mistake. The part ultimately went to Leslie Nielsen, who had always wanted to do comedy. And of course, after Airplane, that's all he did. A number of actors auditioned for the role of Ted Stryker, including David Letterman, who was embarrassed years later when his own audition tape was shown on his own talk show. Sigourney Weaver was cast as Elaine, but she objected to one of her lines about sitting on someone's face, so she was replaced by Julie Haggerty in her first film role. Stephen Stucker, who played the loopy airport control room worker Johnny, came from the Kentucky Fried Theater and was asked to just play himself. He improvised all of his dialogue, which resulted in quite a memorable few lines, such as when Lloyd Bridges hands him the weather report and says, Johnny, what can you make of this? And he says, This, why I can make a hat or a brooch or a pterodactyl. Other people on board were friends and family of the directors, including the Zucker brothers' mother, who is the woman applying makeup during the turbulence scene. There was a lot of laughter on set. Jim Abrams would direct a scene next to the camera while the Zucker brothers watched on the monitors. The brothers were often laughed so loudly that they would ruin the whole take. 
Leslie Nielsen brought in a shoebox of tiny handheld fart machines that a friend had made for him, which he gave out to the entire cast and crew. During downtimes, they would perform as a fart orchestra. It got to the point where the producers confiscated all of them from the entire cast and crew. Despite initial misgivings, Robert Stack was totally on board with the movie's silliness. During one scene, his co-star Lloyd Bridges asked the directors to clarify his character's motivation, and Stack shouted, Lloyd, a spear is going to hit the wall behind you, a watermelon is going to fall on your desk, no one's going to be looking at you. The success of Airplane resulted in a sequel, which Abrams and the Zuckers did not participate in at all. In fact, to this day, none of them have even seen it. When asked, Jim Abrams said, If your daughter became a prostitute, would you go out and watch her work? What's this shit? There it is. There it was. Uh, and so I got one for you. We've been kind of, you've been a little off your game. A little but, bit. Uh, really, you were only off your game once. But then, you know, you were you were out of town. So um, Charlie, Charlie did not get Friday Night Lights. Yeah, I listened to that. I was outraged. Yeah. I mean, you know, we can't all have that. Uh, the crazy brain that you have um but let's see if you let's see if you can let's, get let's ba- get that on a t-shirt please let's see if we can get you back on your game and i'm hanging a lot here on one particular thing and that is that i'm looking at i'm in this cardio cinema uh-huh. i'm on the tread uh i'm i'm doing what i like to call working out even though the person next to me is definitely working out and i'm not doing what they're doing um and i'm looking at julia styles for a change and man oh man the highlight game on her head is strong Julia Stiles. So okay. she's in this. She's got some major insane highlights. That's kind of all I got for you. Uh, there's some kind of a high-tech control room situation happening. Okay. And uh, the word tram is being used a lot. Like, there's like, I literally think I could write the dialogue right now as like, he's on the trams, the trams, the tram, the tram, the tram. That's what it sounded like. So this is probably a Jason Bourne movie. It is. I know because his name was mentioned during the tram segment. I, I I would need more information to tell you which one because she is in a surprising number of them. She's in the first three, I think. Do you want to take a guess and then we'll look later and see if you're right? Uh, Keeping in mind that her highlights are Kukun. Let's say the Bourne Ultimatum. Why not? Okay. I will take a look and let you know if you're right. She might be in Jason Bourne, which was the newest one that I only saw once and was pretty disappointing and not good. Her face doesn't really seem to age, yeah. so it's a little hard to tell, but I can definitely, definitely look at her hair and pinpoint this film and I will let you know. But uh, that's pretty darn good that you figured it out from some pretty, you figured out that at least the series from some the pretty series. basic information. Yeah. So, the, yeah, the rest remains a little elusive, but we'll, we'll get to the good bottom work. of this. We're okay. getting you back on your game. Hey. I am on the line today with Gene Park, who is a supervising sound editor for three pretty major uh, independent film releases of summer 2019. You worked on Rick Alverson's The Mountain, uh, Lulu Wang's The Farewell, which is just now seeing limited release as we're recording this, and uh, sort of The Big Daddy, which is in wide release right now, Ari Aster's Midsommar. Uh, the horror movie that's kind of uh, freaking out audiences all over the country uh, right now. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> so, Gene, thanks for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And and to start, um, just to educate our audience, I suppose, what is it exactly that the supervising sound editor does on the film set or in post-production? Yeah, basically I'm on the post-production side. Um, there's, I guess, several parts of what I do, um, I guess the main one is I work with the location sound that's recorded on location with the dialogue of the actors and such, and basically get that, you know, sort of 
prepped and ready for uh, playback for theaters. And then I also uh, oversee sort of the sound design process, what people call it, where you add new sounds uh, like Foley and sound effects and ambiences. Um, and I kind of oversee that whole process, you know, hiring sound editors, um, communicating directly with uh, the director and producers for what kind of vision they have and kind of seeing that come to life. Um, and then I also, on these films, I also mix the, the films. So I also work with the uh, composer and the music supervisor and sort of integrate the score and soundtrack into the film. So basically anything oral related, you know, to the ear, I have to kind of deal with. Sure, sure. So these three films that I just mentioned, and they all have very, very different sort of uh, soundscapes, uh, soundtracks. The, the mountain, for instance, is 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 not only very sparse, but but sort of uncomfortable and Midsommar has some of that too, but, but of course it's design is, is meant to sort of shred your nerves now and again with the, the, right. the hacks and cloak soundtrack and, and all of the spooky right. sound effects that, that pop up there. How do you approach each right. job um, knowing that the, the end result can be so radically different sometimes? Uh, I think a lot of it, I mean, oftentimes nowadays I kind of get started in the pre-production process. I'll read the script, you know, and sometimes even have some discussions with uh, the director and producers of what they're looking for. And in terms of the style, um, a lot of it comes down to discussions I have with them. So like what kind of like, you know, maybe previous works that like they really like and they're hoping to kind of use the starting points for their films that are about to be about to come out. Um, a lot of it's also just basically the type of films, like you're mentioning, the mountain is much more stark and kind of uncomfortable, which is definitely sort of a, an aesthetic we're going for. Midsommar is more of a augmentation of the storyline, so to speak. So it's kind of like we're trying to make it more immersive for audiences to feel the characters. And then The Farewell is much more of a, like a, I guess it's like, I don't want to say talky film, but, you know, it's like a dialogue-driven um, narrative that's much more focused on the storylines and the characters and their interactions through dialogue. Um, and I, you know, just using those as beginning, beginning points for what I do, I kind of go from there and work with the director in terms of uh, sort of achieving the sound and vision they're looking for. And you've worked with, with Alverson, for instance, three times before you did uh, the sound work on entertainment and the comedy as well. So I imagine right. if, you, if you've collaborated with uh, a guy like that who has something very specific in mind, you guys probably have a little bit of a shorthand. But when you're starting a new project with someone you've not worked with before, what is that process like? A lot of it is the, uh, just the beginning stages is kind of just getting a feel out for each other and what kind of like, I guess, skills and styles it can bring to the table and it's a bit of a you're right there's a bit of a like with rick because this is my uh third feature and with him there's yeah there's already a shorthand and i kind of already know what sort of uh shapes he's looking for kind of sounds he's looking for um so it's in a way it's much more convenient to get a head start in terms of what he's already looking for and we can discuss more specific things for each project um but new projects a lot of it comes in just like watching their the director's previous work and hopefully the directors and producers know my previous work and we kind of go from there and um, sort of like feel things out. And um, I mean, in my experience has worked out pretty well. Um, I try to keep a real open ear, uh, not be so like idiosyncratic or didactic, but the things I want to do um, and have a much more collaborative process, which has worked out so far for sure. me. So 
I guess most of our audience, by the time this is released, they've they've all anybody who's listening to this has probably seen Midsommar. Um, and so I guess for the purposes of that, um, that's the one I mm-hmm. want to focus on. Um, collaborating with, uh, with Ari Aster, the director, um, what sort of, uh, influences did he want you to bring to the table? What sort of ideas did he come to you with? Uh, looking back, the big, I guess the overriding word I can use to describe what he was looking for, just immersive, like bring the audiences in and like have them feel like they're part of the film. Um, and you know, immersive, immersive doesn't necessarily mean just loud all the time or anything like that. Cause silence can also be immersive as well. Sure. So we use that as kind of, um, sort of a goal and kind of something I kept in the back of my mind all the time. And with, um, in terms of like starting points, we discussed, you know, he's a suspect like he was ready to erase her head and, uh, no country for old men and, um, even stalker with Tarkovsky. So you know, we kind of, and once we discovered we had similar film aesthetics in terms of taste with repertory cinema, like it kind of made things a little easier, especially on my end to like, kind of like know what to look out for and know what not to do, uh, so to speak. Um, Ari definitely, like he was pretty clear. He didn't want like the prototypical horror, uh, you know, aesthetics like jump scares and jump sounds and like things like that. So it was good having those preliminary talks to sort of, uh, start out because like obviously if you've seen a film like it's there's a lot of detail you know and it could have, things could, could have easily gone awry early on or it could have been a lot more of a difficult process if everyone wasn't on the same page so Ari and I definitely had like a lot of uh, discussion and throughout the whole process he was very involved which is which was great in fact I, I would say one of the most startling things about Midsommar is these abrupt silences sometimes you think you're you know, the the score is building up to something and then it will just abruptly cut out and you might see something terrible or, uh, you know, something unexpected. So um, right. that's that's a that's an interesting strategy to just not not make the audience jump with a sudden sound effect, but perhaps make the audience jump with uh, sudden silence. Right. Yeah. And like, I think we during the mix, we kind of we were able to play a lot with that stuff because we already had everything kind of prepped. So it wasn't much like repairing work that we were doing during the mix. So like we were able to explore different, you know, styles or different uh, angles. And you're right. Like we did it often, like not to give everything away, but you know, one scene where like a certain action is happening, I think three or four times. One of them is like very like realistic. Another one is very like sound designy and another one's just silent. And I think just, we use, you know, I think we kind of went with our gut and our emotion and what we're feeling and sort of feeling at what the trajectory should be in terms of those decisions we made. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot, I mean, in the film in general, there's a lot of, uh, I don't say roles or things that we definitely kind of like didn't adhere to, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, you know, it's, it, they have discussions about that. Like there's some instances where we got incredibly loud or like we moved dialogue to like the rear speakers, which is pretty, uh, unconventional. Um, but I think for this film, in terms of like getting that immersive thing that he wanted, I think it worked very well and kind of like not being jarring, but like, you know, shifts and changes that audiences aren't necessarily used to and really pull them into the film. And, uh, yeah. And silence sometimes is almost like the opposite direction. It's like not an expectation. It kind of doesn't go with the expectation that a typical audience member would have. Sure. Um, so I think it was a very clever way of Ari's ideas and very clever way of like pulling them in. Well, what you mentioned about the the dialogue shifting channels, um, you know, not to give anything away or too much away in Midsommar, but 
it, it is a bit psychedelic at points, and and that sound design mm-hmm. sort of sort of informs that a sort of disorientating, um, well, experience like you say, immersive for the audience. How do you how do you sort of, I guess, inform that sort of drug trip mentality in a way that hasn't been done a million times before in in movies? I think the main thing was. Um, typically at conventions, like dialogue, just in the middle, center channel in the front. Yeah. And certain, during certain sequences, we wanted to like almost be like, as if like, if I was an audience member, I was in the middle of the action. So for so the one, the couple sequences you're mentioning, we wanted to almost like have things move as characters move. So if a character turns left and everything kind of shifts left in perspective as if we're there, you know, like in real life, I guess, so to speak. Um, and I think, using that and when we did do that we kind of try to make it much more noticeable by bringing up the levels at certain points and I think it's something it's part of I think it's part of a combination of not going with convention that audience members aren't necessarily used to and then it's actually in a way quite realistic because it's kind of actually you know if I turn left a sound that's to my left would be in the middle so like it's kind of we often use characters perspectives and camera movements to kind of go with what we wanted to do with the uh, sound mix. It was, I mean, it was, a lot, it was a lot of fun, you know, I gotta say that. And like, it, you know, it was quite an experience because oftentimes it was just things that like I was not accustomed to doing and it was just very uh, liberating in a way to kind of just like say like, you know, F it and just kind of go for sure. it. So if, if IMDB is correct, uh, you, you got your, you started your career uh, on a Duplass brothers movie Baghead, um, which is a fairly stripped down production, very low fi um, and sort of steadily worked on independent features of varying budget levels since then. Um, what's changed in your career? I mean, in, in the style and equipment that you use since, since Baghead, I mean, I guess Baghead is uh, really just a couple guys and a camera, right? And then you're called in to do yeah. post work. Oh yeah. Just like, I mean, with that film, like it kind of, I almost like fell into this by accident. I was playing guitar in a band and, uh, the main guitar singer, singer in the band I was in, used to play at Mark DePlace's old band. And after Mark and Jay made the puffy chair, um, they made backhead and I think they wanted to basically just save money, you know, yeah. not pay a lot of money at a big post house. So they're like, Oh, we'll just have a buyer a guitar player do it. And then, uh, he had never done this before. And so he's like, Oh, let me get uh gene, the other guitar player do it. I had never, never, never done this before. Um, but like mainly it was just me, Jay and, Byron is like sharing a pair of headphones and like asking each other, are the crickets too loud or the crickets too quiet? And they kind of trade headphones. Um, yeah, so yeah, it was very kind of like, uh, yeah, just like not much going on in terms of like the amount of people involved. But I think for me, like to like look back and to see where, like what I'm doing now, it's, I learned basically the whole process, you know, just like from suit to nuts, whereas typically at a post house, you learn like specific trades of sound. Um, but from the start, I was just kind of like, you just do it all, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I just kind of learned, uh, that way. Um, and I think as I gotten, yeah, I guess early on, most of my films tended to be much more talky films. And I think as, uh, I guess I, as I've grown, you know, I've kind of like be- become more, uh, I guess, you know, just taking more liberties with things and kind of working with the filmmakers and just kind of growing organically in that sense. Um, wasn't, you know, something like rocket science or a new piece of equipment that I got to kind of change things. It was just kind of more of a process. I feel like, sure. um, from, from then to now. I mean, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, that most of your early films were talking because one of the credits that stands out to me on your IMDb page is, is Dawson city frozen time, 
which is almost like a like a, uh, a documentary essay style film that that might have a little bit of dialogue at the very very beginning and then the bulk of it is is almost entirely soundtrack yeah yeah and like there's a couple other films like there's the buffalo Juggles film this short film about the Juggles and the buffalo new york it's kind of like that um just like no sound and much more like soundscapey and those are those are interesting too because before like in the beginning, I also worked with the Criterion Collection doing restorations for uh, re-releases and, you know, like restoring films like the Koya Nascazi and things like that, sure. or like uh, Stan Soleil and La Jete. Uh, I also got kind of exposed to that style. That's something I always wanted to do more of, but I just hadn't just, I guess, the projects I was getting within the circles I was with tended to be, you know, like the tiny furnitures and backheads. Um, but, you know, I think since then, it's sort of kind of... Uh, grown you know i guess or you know spread and like as you mentioned in the beginning i think that like the mountain the farewell and like the farewell is much more of that ilk of what i used to do more of and then i guess miss samara or mountain would be an example of where i've like kind of branched out to being much more uh uh soundscapey sure than uh realistic yeah well um three really interesting and great films in theaters and in a lot of markets right now um, that your work is is an integral part of. Um, Gene Park, thank you so much for for joining us on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Guess what? We got a sneaky little thing going on in this podcast, Corey. It's some sort of special offer, is That's it not? That's exactly right. So hidden in this podcast, this is another one of those efforts to really manipulate people into listening. So hidden right here at this very moment in this podcast, we have a code for 10% off festival tickets. Oh, my God. And I got to come up with that code, and I started to have the code be Corey is wrong or Corey sucks with an X. And, <laughs> I mean, I went down a long Rachel is right, any number of things, but I've just landed on Sidewalk Talk. It is a Madonna song. Jelly Bean joined her for that, an early one. So if you go in and go to SidewalkFest.com and go to our tickets link, which is right there, uh, and put in the code Sidewalk Talk, you will get 10% off of whatever tickets you purchase. Thank you for not going with Corey Sucks. Oh, no. I wanted to really bad. Sidewalk Talk. And now, a look at what we're watching this week. So I just saw two movies about animals running amok, uh, one in the Uh-oh. cinema and one at home. Uh, the one was I saw in the cat? cinema was one of them your cat. One of them was not my cat. Uh, one, the one I saw in the cinema was a movie called Crawl. Uh, Crawl is the newest uh, horror thriller from uh, Alexandra Aja, the director of High Tension, uh, The Hills Have Eyes remake, and The Piranha remake. Crawl might be one of his uh, his better films. This is a pure uh, summer horror fun uh, at, at the movies. Uh, it's a movie about uh, two people, uh, estranged father and daughter, who are trapped in a crawl space under a home with some alligators as a hurricane approaches and everything's flooding. Uh, pretty simple setup. Actually, it takes, you know, some stretching to get there because you got to get the people in the, the the crawl space. I just have to interject really quick yeah. and also mention that crawl is also the name of a character played by Polly Shore, the weasel buddy, and a film. And can you name that film? I'm so sorry for interjecting, no, this, but I can't, I can't stop. I genuinely do not know. I think it's called Son-in-Law. It's a great Thanksgiving film. Anyway, how did, continue. How did that come to mind? 
His name is Crawl. I don't understand how you know that. (laughs) Continue, please. I'm so sorry for the interruption. I don't don't know what else to say. They're gators. (laughs) They they take bites out of people. I mean, and the bites are portrayed in some pretty grisly, like, makeup and gore effects. And it's just a fun time at the movies if you like, you know, creature features. It's a a good time. I like creature features. I do. What's the other one? Uh, Tim Burton's Dumbo, which is not good. Oh, I can't watch it. Yeah. Um, Tim Burton took the relatively svelte, like, 68 or so minute runtime of the classic Disney original and uh, turned it into this bloated two-hour live-action reimagining. Well, he's a hack. He's become a hack. He has become one, and and I'm reluctant to say that. I'm not. Looking back at his filmography, um, right around the time of the, the turn of the millennium, he fell off a cliff and has not really recovered. Um, I could make a really inappropriate joke, but I'm not going to. Okay, well, it would be good. it would be morbid and mean. Um, Dumbo is a beautiful looking movie um, because Disney put all the money in the world towards yeah, it. Yeah, um, as they do. the The production design, as you would expect from a Tim Burton movie, is is pretty um, eye catching as well. Um, there are some fun, I guess, actors in it who aren't really doing anything interesting. Michael Keaton's wearing a wig. Uh, Danny DeVito's running around doing can, his Danny DeVito thing. Can Burton do a film without Michael Keaton in it? Is that possible? Well, this is the first time they've they've worked together since Batman Returns. Oh, really? I guess um, I've been so bored by him, I didn't realize. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, I might normally like come back at you with some sort yeah. of rejoinder, but I can't muster up any sort of energy. This movie is really, really boring. Yeah. It's just, it's lifeless. Everybody just seems to be going through the motions. Um, the special effects used to bring the elephant to life are pretty impressive. The elephant's pretty cute. But otherwise, like, we've got that that animated movie right there, you know? If yeah. you want to watch Dumbo, right. watch the good one, you know? I, I kind of feel that way about all these Disney live-action remakes of things. Um, they're yeah. superfluous. They, they don't really have a reason to exist. And um, this is no exception, unfortunately. Well, a cute elephant does go a long way. So I will at least you know wrap you up on that positive note and i will tell you that what i'm watching is actually i was in pittsburgh for a wedding Mm -hmm. it was a um happened right in the middle of a screening um you know people don't plan their weddings around me um and so i had a a forced vacation which i which i really appreciated and um congratulations and best wishes to tom and christina my friends um that got married and so i was there for a wedding and of course i snuck out of the reception to go to a movie theater to see a film and um yeah uh, which is kind of cool um and so i went to the row house cinema in pittsburgh they were screening a 9 30 p.m showing of the favorite and I'm not going to talk about The Favorite again because I already have and people, um, you know, nobody wants to hear me talk about the same movie again. Maybe they don't want to even hear me the first time. Um, and so, uh, but what I'm going to tell you about is I'm going to kind of almost like take a little note from from Kyle and uh, and do like a little moment of my experience going to see this film. So I sneak out of the reception um, to go to the Row House Cinema. And I mean, you know, I I had, I put my time in and, um, but I couldn't resist. So I'm in the cab and the, and the, uber driver is asking me i guess i should call it the uber right i'm in the um i'm in the uber and the the driver is sort of asking me you know where are you going what are you doing and it's you know a little interesting to take you from the reception was at the ballpark Mm -hmm. um and so take you from there to a movie theater what's going on and so i said i'm just kind of explained oh we're opening a movie theater and i like movies and 
and he tells me i haven't you know i haven't been i don't really go to the movies okay well why not i said you know try to convince him it's an important thing i don't know why all of a sudden i'm like the salesperson for all movies in this in this uber but i am and he says to me well the last time i saw a movie in the theater it wasn't good Uh-oh. and i said well when was that and i'm thinking you know any number of things and he says the matrix what so there's i saw the favorite the row house cinema was lovely um had a really good time that film it turns out is still very very good yeah um but the gentleman in the uh and the uber hasn't seen a film in the theater because the matrix sucked to him so wow that was that's what i'm watching ago. so thank you so much for listening to side talks we are your personal david and maddie do you get that reference no i don't that's where we need um boutwell to give us a little moonlighting strangers right here algero if you've never watched moonlighting um, your homework is piling up and actually i'm just going to go ahead and hit you with this it's really your own personal david and agnes de pesto yeah, that's even more inscrutable to me. So go to SidewalkFest.com, buy tickets, do all kinds of stuff. What else? Check us out on social media, at Sidewalk Film, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever else we have a social media presence, which is pretty much everywhere. Um, rate and review us on iTunes. It helps raise the profile of the show um, and recommend us to your friends. We, we really appreciate our growing listenership. Um, it is steadily getting up there. And special thanks to Batwall Studios for hosting us, editing us, making us sound somewhat good, because this is a tough job here. And, of course, to Splash 96 for our amazing music. Uh, Thanks for listening. As always, check us out next week. See you later. Bye. Batwell Studios Podcast Division. Your words, our expertise.